Hello, and welcome to Teaching Together, the complete mathematics podcast. On the podcast, we talk through a single objective in detail in order to make our teaching of the chosen idea more impactful. I'm Dave Taylor, and today we're joined by my complete maths colleague, Kieran Mackle. Great to be back, Dave. Thanks for having me. What are we looking at today, Kieran? Monetary amounts using the smallest amount of coins. And this objective is from Unit 6 of Stage 2 of the Complete Mathematics Curriculum. You can access this objective and the whole curriculum made up of 1,800 objectives at completemaths.com for free. You can follow along at home by heading to completemaths.com forward slash podcast to download the slide deck of tasks from today's episode. Once you've downloaded this, let's dive into Teach, Do, Practice, Behave with monetary amounts using the smallest amount of coins. Before we teach pupils a new idea, we must be sure that we're doing the right maths at the right level. If we're not and it's too easy, we run the risk of boring pupils. But if it's too hard, we run the risk of developing the idea that maths isn't for everyone. And we know that everyone can learn maths well. We can check that we're doing the right maths by assessing prerequisite knowledge. Kieran, tell us how we might go about that in the classroom. So money's always a really interesting one for me because I think it's one of the first times that an object will have greater than a one-to-one correspondence. And obviously we talked about cardinality the first time I was on the podcast. And, you know, at that point, pupils are developing their understanding that you can count or assign a value of one to one object. But with money, that's not the case. You've almost got this one-to-many correspondence. And for six-year-olds, it might not make total sense why the correspondence has been assigned. And... so I think it's, yeah, it's really interesting to see how pupils think through this. And each of the prerequisites, you know, there are quite a few. They build towards a level of confidence with money. Um, and essentially, the objective is a demonstration of complete control, you know, when manipulating relevant monetary amounts. So I think when we're designing a task to assess those prerequisites, we don't need seven or eight individual tasks because one task will show us all of those composites sort of pieces of knowledge skills um, you know however you want to define it um, together in one thing um, and because you've almost got this prerequisite chain where each dependent depends directly on the on the chain itself um, and so i've gone for a task that involves the pupils forming amounts with the selection of coins to solve inverted commas real world problems which um, will allow us to assess the readiness of the new mathematical idea in this objective. Um, so we've got Sam wanting to buy a magazine, it costs five pounds and 33 pence. Which of these coins could Sam use to pay for the magazine? And so you will have to identify the value of the coins. You'll have to be able to sort of combine them into different amounts. And there are more, there's more than one response possible. So, you know, you'll get an idea of how the pupils are thinking, how they're approaching this kind of problem. Nice. Now, I, I know this is from stage two, but I want to put some secondary experience on this. Um, so with lower returning pupils, even at year 10 and year 11, so we're talking 15, 16 year olds, they're still not confident with working with coins and they don't know which coins exist. To give some context, um, we do the entry level um, qualification from AQA with some pupils because it's great for building their confidence. They go from scoring eight out of 80 to scoring like 27 out of 30 and it just builds some motivation within them. 
Um, but there are questions in there. Questions like, make 17 pence using coins. And pupils will write 10 pence and 7 pence to make 17 pence. Now, have they just not used coins? Or do they think that a 7 pence coin exists? I think we live in a very interesting time because money was really prevalent when we grew up. And you would go to the shop for your parents, your grandparents, your auntie, your uncle, and you bring back the, what would we call them? We call them the messages. But, you know, you go to the shop, you get the milk, you get the bread, that kind of thing. And you're using coins almost every day. Um, now, certainly, I think there are very few groups which hold on to that use of money. You know, I know that, you know, my in-laws aren't keen on online banking. And their generation perhaps might all have similar thoughts because you know they're they're not used to it. But you've got this young generation who you know are living in a time when there are some banks that are solely online banks. And you know I think we're very very close to a point to the digitization of currency completely. Um, and I think yeah, in 10, 15, 20 years, you know this this might be an obsolete. Uh, endeavor you know but i think it's it, in terms of mental manipulation of of values it's it's a worthwhile pursuit in itself but yeah i think you're right children just don't have the access to the to the currency in the way that we would have yeah right so now that we've checked these prerequisites and we know that pupils are ready to learn the new idea we're ready to teach in the teach phase the idea is entirely novel to pupils though only just beyond their current level of understanding the teacher shares key facts and uses metaphor and model to explain and describe so that pupils can meaning make and form connections within their current schema. So, Kieran, how are we approaching this phase? So I think with the prerequisite testing, we should be pretty confident that the pupils are comfortable working with money. So we ask ourselves, what, what are we teaching them? And I think we're teaching them to be flexible and efficient in their manipulation of monetary amounts. And so I would perhaps give as many non-examples as I give examples. Um, you know, the one I've gone for, I think, is uh, giving a cashier 300 pennies to pay for something that costs three pounds. You know, that's a, an example of when, you know, you have not been flexible in your thought process. <laughs> you know, model different options, look at the composition of smaller amounts and then build them up. Because like you say, you know, sometimes things get overlooked and there is a more efficient way. And I think in when we get to your behave task, You've done a really good job of sequencing the questions in such a way that those kinds of sort of mental slips have been are are the focus of the question sequence, and so you're you're drawing out, you know, the need to really pay attention. And what I'm doing as a teacher is I'm reinforcing that their decision making is what's important. And in parallel with this, I'm also doing the same kind of reinforcement when I want pupils to think flexibly with calculations in general. And so choosing the most efficient and effective solution for the task at hand, and I think it transfers really well here. So you're almost getting that double, um, you're doubling up on asking people to prioritize what you think is important. For me, it's being flexible with number. Yeah, because you want them to think carefully about the relationships, you know, 5, 10, and 20, 1, 2, 10, um, and a task with, I think, multiple options. And that's what I've tried to do demonstrates the idea that flexibility is something that's worthwhile. Um, and you can see, you know, we want to make, um, how many ways can we make 48 pence? What's the fewest number of coins you can use? So there's a couple of layers of sort of thinking, and it's not just being able to make 48 pence and the composition of 48 
it's a very much a case of the decision here is what I'm being assessed on. You haven't mentioned this yet, so I'll let me put this question to you, Kieran. Are we giving pupils coins to work with here? My preference is for real money. What I used to say was go to the school office and get and borrow the petty cash. Wow. You know, and sometimes this will you'll need to be done in advance because there may not be the smaller denominations hanging around school. But I every time I've asked, you know, someone to go to the bank for me and change up, say, ten pounds into you know, a certain number of each denomination. You know, it, it's been a pretty reasonable thing. I don't like plastic coinage because, you know, you've got a representation of a representation. And I, I think, you know, they, they very rarely match the actual sort of um, physical object itself. And when it's just as easy to get the physical object, I don't see the, the point. So, yeah, 100% have coins, manipulate them just as you would in a real life situation. Yeah, thanks, Kieran. Um, we're now going to transition out of a teach phase and look for people's to do, and that's coming up next. In the do phase, pupils are simply replicating what they have been shown. In most cases, this is likely to be a procedure that leads to a solution. The do phase complements the teach phase by allowing pupils to develop confidence and fluency in working with the new procedure. Now in this phase, the teacher needs to be responsive to pupils, amending their model or example to make stronger connections in pupil schema, but also maintaining pupil motivation. The aim of this stage is for pupils to be successful in replicating the novel idea, and it's important to state that meaningful learning hasn't yet occurred. So this phase is all about replication. And I like to do this using example problem pairs, alternating between teach and do, telling them something and having them replicate on mini whiteboards. I can give instant feedback and build on what has landed, amending my explanations for things that haven't until pupils can replicate and literally do what I've shown them. Now once I know that pupils can replicate the new idea, I want them to develop fluency with it, so they'll do some fluency work in their exercise books. What do you do here, Kieran? I mean, I think this is very much my turn, your turn situation with minimally different examples. I mean, in the on the slide deck, you've got six question types, and I think they cover quite a lot of the context that you might meet this uh, this mathematical idea in. And so I'm thinking, okay, do I want to slightly tweak each of those so that you've got a my turn? So the first one says Bellamy pays for a 73p bag with one pound coin. Do I want, you know, maybe Bellamy Payne with, you know, 63 pence with a one pound coin, you know, and then and move my way through the sequence. Um, but at all times, I'm going to really be responsive to what the pupils are telling me, you know. And I think ultimately what I want to do is I want to phase responsibility for the decision making to the pupils, you know, and initially I might give them one coin to choose. So I could choose two parts of the pro of the solution and they choose the final one. Um, and then by the end, I want them choosing all the coins of the sequence have been really flexible with it. It, de it depends on what they what they show as we go through this sequence. So I, I'm with you, example problem pairs, and then taking responsibility towards the pupils and sort of increasing that complexity as we go through. What I maybe don't make over enough in this phase is to quote Neil Armand in a podcast that we recorded yesterday, a high success rate. We need pupils to feel success so that they remain motivated 
so that they're doing well throughout the teach and do phases before we segue into that practice phase? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in thinking deeply about primary mathematics, I say that this is akin to mimicry. You know, there's no assessment that can be drawn from this, really, because the pupils are mimicking what they've seen in your example, you know. And so when we're thinking about learning, it is that learning that's going to take place, you know. So hopefully they'll get a grasp of it here, but I'm going to assess them on things that happen further down the line, you know. So I'm totally with Neil and you on that one. In the practice phase, pupils move beyond simply performing and begin to develop more flexible knowledge of the idea. Unfortunately, it's quite common that a maths lesson doesn't get this far. Pupils tend to perform with a new idea, but don't form connections between the novel idea and their existing schema, and this affects retention. Through teach and do, pupils are now fluent with the procedure for monetary amounts using the smallest amount of coins. So we're now directing their attention to underlying structures, relationships and principles, bringing about strong connections with prior knowledge. We're looking for a well-structured and intelligently designed task that will aid pupils in forming links with their existing schema. So Kieran, what kind of activity might the teacher be using here? I would like to be really specific about what we want them to practice. And obviously that'll be informed by your previous stage. Um, but I think generally the decision making might be a good place to focus their attention here. And so we might have, you know, you've got your grid with them um, four sort of question types and a sequence through. And it might be that you also want to give them three possible solutions to question one. If you know, you're fine with them actually solving this, but they haven't opted for the most efficient solution or what would be most efficient in the real world. You know, like I said, not given, you know, X number of one pence coins. Um, and then, you know, things like prompts could be good the whole way through this. And so one of the prompts could be a standing question like, when might this solution be better than another? And so you, whenever you're questioning people and checking for understanding, You'll want to, you know, you're going to say they know they're going to get asked that question. So you focus their attention both on the sequence of questions, but also on the sort of thinking you want them to do as well. Because obviously we know it's the thinking that makes a difference to their their learning. I mean, that's a really question four on the slide deck is really interesting. Dave. Do you want to talk us through your decision making when yeah. you sequence the questions? Absolutely. Um, so question one, for the benefit of a listener, is that Mel buys a chocolate bar for 27 pence and pays with a 50 pence coin. We want to know how much change they get. So it's just a subtraction question, but linked to the idea of change. Question two then looks at the number of different ways to make that change, which is 23p, using coins. And obviously there are many. So I wouldn't expect pupils to list them all. And when they've got about five or six, move them forward through the task. Question three then likes to build on this idea, but using the smallest number of coins possible. So we're bringing this idea into the real world, in inverted commas, because if you bought a chocolate bar for 27p, paid with a 50 pence coin, and you got 23 1p coins in change, well, that's the kind of thing that raises blood pressure. And then to finish the, uh, the task, question four, you know, builds on this idea, but this time we're looking at minimally different questions. So we go to 21p from 23p. And people should simply just remove 2p from the coins that they had previously. 
And then when we make 30 pence in change out of our coins, pupils might want to bring in 9 pence more. And they do this using the most efficient way possible, which is a 5 pence and two 2 pences. Rather than just swapping out a 1p for a 10p, which is truly the most efficient way to make 30p. And this is maybe where a cognitive shock takes hold, and we can use the hypercorrection effect to aid learning. And then, by the time we're up to 40p, maybe they do replace a 10 pence with a 20 pence, taking the 20 and the 10, and then we take the 10 out and replace it with a 20 to make 40p. And then the, the task goes full circle, back to the cost of a chocolate bar, but paying with exact change as efficiently as possible. So instead of paying with a 50 pence coin, we're now looking to put our hand in our pocket, take all the coins out that we have, and then pay with the exact change of 27 pence, which is obviously 25 and 2. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, it really makes you think. And as you're watching people solve this, you can see, you know, whether they're falling into those traps, so to speak, or if they're being flexible, you know. And then at that point, you're thinking, okay, you know, if they navigate this without sort of displaying any of those misconceptions or those overgeneralizations or just general errors, then I think you're, you're onto a winner and you think, okay, these kids understand monetary amounts. And after pupils have formed deeper understanding, assimilating the idea into their schema, we're looking at them behaving mathematically. In order to develop mathematicians, this phase is the most important of all. We deepen understanding through behaving mathematically, and when behaving mathematically, maturation matters. Tests are chosen from well-embedded and mature ideas that connect to the novel idea. A good rule of thumb is that this kind of maturation takes two years, so we're looking for pupils to transition from specialising to conjecturing and generalising through to analysing and reasoning with a related idea from two stages previous. For monetary amounts using the smallest amount of coins, in stage two, pupils have exhibited mathematical behaviour throughout. Young children love playing shops, taking money from you, giving money back in change, and this has been used as we progress through the learning episode. If we consider this idea maturing over the next two years, and behaving mathematically in the future, we've put a task from GAME, which I believe stands for Graduated Assessment in Mathematics, on slide 7. It's for 2s and 5s activity, and the aim is to identify which numbers up to 20 cannot be made by adding 2s and 5s. And this is followed up by identifying the largest number which cannot be made. We then do this with threes and fives, and then investigate for other pairs of numbers. Kieran, do you have any thoughts about this task? I think it's perfect. A really, really good example of how you can utilize the sort of maturation period. You know, so what's a year four, and pupils are learning perhaps about some sort of multiplicative reasoning, perhaps even additive reasoning, I don't know. And you don't necessarily need to use the mathematics of that day in the sort of rich mathematical tasks you set, you know, or you're in for your enrichment, you know, because the tendency I think is to think, okay, we're learning about multiplication. So let's assign rich tasks focusing on multiplication. Well, actually here you're going back to content that pupils will have covered, hopefully learned about in stage two. And then in stage four, they can really think deeply about it, you know. So I think it's 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 a perfect example of how the the mathematics might have been appropriate at an earlier stage, 
but actually this is a really rich investigation for uh, people sort of working at the stage four. I don't know if that's the right way to describe it, but I think, you know, it's a, it's a really good example. The task itself, I first encountered when I was going through the game tasks a couple of years ago. And I love this because I could use it with my lowers in year 10 group when we were looking at money. But it also gave me the opportunity to talk about the order of operations because 11 is 5 plus 2 plus 2 plus 2, which is 5 plus 3 times 2. And it had given me the chance to elicit that understanding from them again. But what I found most interesting about this was my realisation that this is potentially the reason that we have 2 pence and 5 pence coins and a 1 pence coin to make the 3p and 1p amounts. And this is the most efficient way of forming monetary amounts. I've talked about 1, 2 and 5 being the magic numbers for money with my 5-year-old. And now she's quite good at identifying 1, 2 and 5 and 10, 20 and 50 as the coins and notes that we use. Do you think that's the reason that we do this or am I reading too much into this? I, it makes a lot of sense. You know, obviously decimalization is what, 50-ish years ago? I think someone then will have made the decision to choose the most mathematically efficient way to make all of the different amounts, you know, using the fewest number of coins, you know, without completely debasing the currency. So, uh, yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense to me, especially with things happening so recently, because obviously we had base 12 was quite prevalent prior to decimalization and the denominations were completely different. Um, so, yes, it, it makes sense to me that, uh, that some sort of mathematical reasoning will have gone on in the background at the Bank of England or wherever this decision was ultimately made. Well, that's it for this episode of Teaching Together. Remember that you can check out the entire curriculum for free at CompleteMaths.com. That's over 1,800 objectives from counting to calculus. We hope that you've taken a lot from this episode, and if you have any questions, comments or thoughts, don't hesitate to get in touch on Twitter. My handle is at and Mine is at Kieran underscore M underscore Ed. Or you can get in touch with the Complete Maths team on at LaSalle Ed. We're also available via email... I'm Dave at CompleteMaths.com. And I'm Kieran at CompleteMaths.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to leave a review on your chosen podcast provider and feel free to pass the pod to both colleagues and friends so that we can all improve our... Teaching together. Until next time, take care. Take care.